Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8, we're going to look at verses 1 through 17. Matthew 8, 1 through 17, there's a black hardcover pew Bible in the pew in front of you. If you want to, go ahead and grab that and turn to page 861. Page 861, we're going to read Matthew 8, 1 through 17. When I say 8, 1 through 17, the 8 is the chapter number, that's the big number, and 1 through 17 are the small numbers, those are the verse numbers, if this is your, if this is your first time looking at a Bible. If you don't own a Bible, we have free Bibles in the back. There's these paperback Bibles. I don't have one here, but there's one in the back. There's some in the back, and so um, you can feel, feel free to go ahead and grab those paperback orange Bibles and take that home if that would serve you well. We'd love to give that to you. All right, hear the word of God from Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 17. One more thing, just before I read, one of our, one of our customs that's kind of slowly growing here, but it seems to be, is after I read the text... I say, this is the word of the Lord. This is a Church of England tradition, but um, I say, this is the word of the Lord. And when the Church of England didn't have the word for so long, they were so grateful to have God's word. And so the reader would say, this is the word of the Lord, and the congregation would respond and say, thanks be to God. So I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord, and you're going to say? All right. Matthew 8, 1 through 17. When he came down from the mountain, large crowds followed him. Right away, a man with leprosy came up and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Reaching out his hand, Jesus touched him, saying, I am willing, be made clean. Immediately, his leprosy was cleansed. Then Jesus told him, See that you don't tell anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony, as a testimony to them. When he entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, Lord, my servant is lying at home, paralyzed, in terrible agony. He said to him, am I to come heal him? Lord, the centurion replied, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. But just, just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority. Having soldiers under my command, I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. Hearing this, Jesus was amazed and said to those following him, Truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with so great a faith. I tell you that many will come from east and west to share the banquet with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus told the centurion, Go. As you have believed, let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that very moment. Jesus went into Peter's house and saw his mother-in-law lying in a bed with a fever. So he touched her hand and the fever left her. Then she got up and began to serve him. When evening came, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed. He drove out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. 
so that what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. He himself took our weaknesses and carried our diseases. This is the word of the Lord. May his word dwell richly among us. Father, we thank you that you speak. We thank you that when you speak, we are given the gift of hearing. We pray, Lord, that we would not only hear your word, but that we would heed your word. That it would not come in one ear and pass out the other. That we would not be distracted by the trials of this world or the treasures of this world, the pains or the pleasures of this world, but that you would give us a focus on you. That as we look at your word and listen to your word and look at Jesus, you would give us the gift of faith. The gift of trusting what you say and the gift of receiving grace through faith. This can only happen by the almighty power of your Holy Spirit. So we ask for his help now to help us see Christ because we know, Lord, that you've taught us that when we see your son, we see you. So, Father, show us your glory, we pray. And may we be changed from one degree of glory to the next. In Jesus' name, amen. It was around 1992 when at a church gathering in West Covina, I sensed the Lord was calling me to become a pastor. I was 12 years old. I loved God, and so I said, yeah, Lord, if you want me to, but I didn't want to. See, I wanted to be a rich deacon, not a poor pastor. That's what I like to say. And the reason why I say a, a, a poor pastor is because I had only seen one church, and we had only had one, that was the only pastor I've ever known. I grew up in a Roman Catholic home, and then here we are at a Christian church, and our pastor was poor. And I thought, well, if I'm going to be a pastor, I'm going to be poor. I'd rather be a rich deacon. I say that because, though I didn't know what rich was, our family was middle class and not rich, but my dad was a deacon, and he was sold out to the Lord. He loved Jesus, and he loved the word, and he loved the church, and I thought, I could be sold out to Jesus just like my dad, but I don't have to be poor. I could be a rich deacon, I thought, as a 12-year-old. So I said, yes, Lord, but I really didn't say yes, Lord. Deep down, I didn't want to do it, and I didn't. So then, then fast forward six years later, in the summer of, of 1998, something happened to me. That summer, I graduated from high school, and between high school and college, God overwhelmed me with his goodness and love. Every time I would read the Bible, things were just exploding in my heart and mind, and I was so happy that I thought, Lord, if you're going to keep me this happy in you, I don't care how poor I am. Just be this close to me as long as I live, and you could, I could be as poor as you want me to be. And so at that point, I had already always kind of known God wanted me to be a pastor, but after that, I like the... the the fear of being poor or the, the love of money, which is the root of all kinds of evil, was broken that summer. And I was ready to finally submit to what I thought God was calling me to do. But for a long time, I wasn't ready. Have you ever known what God wanted you to do, but you were not excited to do it? Have you ever, I mean, how, how do we take God's authority and then gladly submit to him. I mean, John says that his commands are not burdensome, but if we're honest, some of God's commands feel like a, a burden, right? They feel heavy. They feel like a drudgery. How do we have a happy submission to what God calls us to do? We're, we're talking about submitting to God's authority in this passage, to Christ's authority. What is authority? 
John Frame says this, power is might and authority is right. Power is might, authority is right. God's power controls things, but his authority is his right to do that. So it is his right to our obedience and to our trust. We must obey his commands, believe his statements, trust his promises, end quote. Jonathan Lehman defines authority this way. Authority is the moral right to exercise power. The moral right to exercise power. So power is might, authority is right. The moral right to exercise your power. So when God exercises his authority, his power over us, to trust him, to obey him, to believe him, how do we enthusiastically receive his authority? If we're honest, authority feels like a bad thing, and there's a reason why we think authority is a bad thing, because we have often seen authority abused and misused against our good, have we not? People have corrupted authority, People have abused their authority. People have taken advantage of their authority. I mean, I even prayed for, was it Sudan and the military who's now taking over for two years. I'm praying that in two, if they say they're going to rule for two years, that they keep to two years and that they don't go farther because power corrupts, doesn't it? And when you have that right, you're tempted to go beyond that moral right to immoral exercise of authority. So we hesitate in trusting authority. Everyone needs, we think, everyone needs good checks and what? Checks and what? Checks and balances, right? But here's the problem. Jesus doesn't have checks and balances. No one checks him. No one balances him. And then he, he exercises authority over you. And there's no one to check Jesus. That makes us feel scared. What if he exercises his authority wrongly? What if he abuses or misuses his authority? So we hesitate to trust Jesus and entrust ourselves fully to Jesus' authority. We know we're not supposed to. We know we're not supposed to hesitate. So we reason and we make excuses of why we don't have to obey this command or trust that promise or believe this word. But in the end, we feel a low-level guilt that we're not really trusting the Lord as we ought to trust him. And actually, we're actually feeling a little ashamed that we're suspicious of Jesus. That's sad, that Christians can actually be suspicious of Jesus's authority. I hate that feeling. Can we gladly submit to his authority with full enthusiasm? Is that possible? It is possible. God calls us to do that. God wants us to do that. And Matthew wrote this passage to help us not just say, okay, fine, I give up. God's twisting my arm. Fine, I don't want the pain anymore. I'll submit. But Matthew writes this passage so that we would gladly, happily, enthusiastically submit to Christ's authority. So that, here's the main goal. Gladly submit to, to Jesus' authority so that you enjoy your life in him both now and forever. Gladly submit to Jesus' authority so that you enjoy your life in Christ, both now and forever. The name of the game is submission when we're talking about authority. So how do we do it? How does Matthew help us? Matthew gives us three pictures of Jesus here. There are three episodes here in this passage that Matthew gives us so that we can see recognize the goodness of Christ's authority. Okay, So we need to recognize the goodness of Christ's authority. And he gives us three pictures to recognize that goodness. First, Jesus heals a leper. Second, Jesus heals a centurion's servant. 
And third, Jesus heals Peter's mother and a bunch of other people who come to him that night. So we have three healings here. And what we want to see is Christ's authority in his will for our good. That's point number one, his will for our good. His word for our good and his work for our good. His will for our good, his word for your good, and his work for your good. In, all these, in these three pictures, okay? So number one, recognize Jesus' will for your good. Look at Matthew chapter 8. Verse 1 just gives us the historical setting. Now keep in mind, Matthew is not going in chronological order. This first story and the last story, episode 1 and episode 3 here, actually happened before the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew is not giving us chronological order here. He's actually taking these topics and he's bundling them together to make a specific theological point. And the point here is authority, okay? So um, verse 1 says, When he came down from the mountain, large crowds followed him. So he's, just, he's moving on with the story in that part, and now he's just going to sub, sub in here. And the text here says, right away. It's better tra translated, and now look. And so he's giving um, pictures of, of, um, of, of healing here. And we know this, the order because Mark chapter 1 gives us the order, and so does Luke. It's in Mark and Luke, and they, have the, they preserve the order. Matthew actually mixes it up. Okay, look at verse 2, though. So here's the first episode of the leper. Right away, a man with leprosy came up and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. So here's a leper. And what is a leper? A leper is someone with a skin disease. Now, there's all kinds of skin diseases. And in Leviticus 13 and 14, lepers were to go to the priest to get examined when they thought they were healed or when they, were, when they had a skin disease. Is it, does it qualify as a skin disease where I have to be declared unclean? So then the priest would pronounce someone clean or unclean. And if they're pronounced unclean, here's what happened. Leviticus 13, 45 and 46 says this. The person who has a case of a serious skin disease is to have his clothes torn. So he has to walk around with torn clothes and his hair hanging loose. He can't fix his hair. And he must cover his mouth and cry out, unclean, unclean, unclean. Can't keep his mouth open because he doesn't want to spread the germs. Cover his mouth and shout unclean, unclean. He will remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He must live alone in a place outside the camp. So here's a man who's been lonely. Not only does he have the problem of being an outcast, inside he's lonely. He feels despair, discouragement, desperation, even shame. We could relate to that. We felt ashamed before. We felt lonely and desperate. This man is desperate, and his desperation leads him to audacity. What does he do in verse 2 again? He comes up to Jesus and kneels before him. He comes up to Jesus and kneels before him. Now, if you know, you know, we just talked, we prayed about an Ebola breakout. Remember when there was an Ebola scare even coming to America? I mean, if someone came up to you with that disease and came right up to you and knelt before you, what would you do? You would back up. You absolutely would back up. You'd get mad at the person. Hey, watch out. What are you doing? This, this is an audacious leper with a skin disease. He goes right up to Jesus and kneels right in front of him. That's bold. That's shocking. That's audacious. But Jesus' response is equally shocking and audacious because he doesn't back up. He doesn't get mad at the guy. He doesn't shy away. What does he do? He doesn't lean away. He actually leans in. Look at verse 3. What does he do? Reaching out his hand, he what? He touches him. You're not supposed to touch an unclean person. 
ceremonially, if you touch an unclean person, you become ceremonially unclean. You have to go outside the camp for a few days and do the cleansing. So here Jesus reaches out and touches him and answers him. Mark gives us an extra detail here that Matthew doesn't give us, that Jesus looked on him with compassion. Even though Matthew doesn't give it to us, the very fact of touching someone is compassionate. I remember um, a lot of members here. We had Sometimes we have homeless members, or not members, but homeless um, visitors and guests here in our gathering. And I remember there are times where different members would greet them and give them hugs. And they would say things like, you know what, I don't get hugs from people. But there's compassion in a hug. There's a willingness there to, to meet somebody there. Touch is important in communicating care. And Jesus goes against the cleanliness laws, the ceremonial laws, and actually touches the man. So what, does, what happens? Let's read on. So he touches the man, and he says, I am willing be made clean. And so instead of Jesus, Jesus becoming unclean, immediately the leper was what? Was clean. He was cleansed. The leprosy was cleansed. Now notice here, what is the man saying to Jesus? What is the leper saying to Jesus? If you are what? Willing. And Jesus said, I am willing. Notice the authority of Jesus. The leper says, all it takes is you wanting to do it. If you will it to happen, it's going to happen. This man is believing in the, will, the, the sovereign will or the powerful will of Jesus. He believes that Jesus' will is effective. Now, there's only one person who everything he wants, he gets. Who's that? God. Psalm 115.3 says this. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Whatever he wants. Ephesians 1.11. God works everything according to the counsel of his will. Everything. Everything God wants to do and decrees to do, he does. He is sovereign. He is in control. That's what we call God's sovereign will or his will of decree. Whatever God wants to do, he has the power to effectively do it. And here, this leper sees Jesus and says, if you will, it will happen. Wow. Is he claiming that Jesus is God? Maybe that might go too far here. Maybe we're giving too much credit for understanding. We understand that Jesus is God, though, right? That he is the God-man. And so we see here maybe even more than what the leper sees. Now, this is in contrast to other people who would heal lepers. One of the most famous leprosy healing stories in the Bible is the story of Naaman, the Syrian, with Elisha the prophet in the Old Testament. If you remember, um, the Syrian came, uh, the king had one of his generals, and he's like, hey, I heard there's a, there's a prophet in, in Israel who can heal leprosy. So he sends his general over to the king of Israel, and he says, and the, the, uh, he comes with a letter, and the letter says, the king of Syria, which is a stronger nation at the time, heal my, heal my general. And the king of Israel's like, what? How can I heal your general? Am I God? I mean, only God can do that. Can I do that? This guy just wants to start a war with me. He's actually trying to provoke war. And so he started crying. The king started crying in despair. And one of the servants said, hey, there's a prophet. Send him to Elisha. Elisha might be able to do it. So the king sends Naaman, the leper, to Elisha. And what does Elisha do? He knocks on the door. Knocks on the door. Um, Elisha's servant answers. And Elisha's servant says, Yes, and he says, I'm a leper here. I'm the general of the armies of Syria, and I am here because I need to see the prophet, the man of God, to be healed of my leprosy. And so he says, hold on one minute, closes the door, runs upstairs, talks to Elisha. Elisha, there's a man, a general of the, of the biggest army in the world right now wanting to see you. 
And then Elisha says, go back downstairs, tell him to dip in the Jordan seven times. So the servant comes down and says, Elisha's busy right now. But if you would go to the dirty Jordan River and dip yourself seven times, you'll be made clean. And Naaman said, he's busy. I'm the general of Syria. What are you talking about? He's too busy for me. He's so offended. He just says, forget this. We're going home. And then the servants plead, no, please, Lord. Talking to the general, you came all this way. You might as well just go in. Just try it. So he's like, all right, fine. So he goes in. He dips seven times. And when he comes out, his skin is as smooth as a baby without eczema. Smooth as a baby. So smooth baby skin. And... Um, and so, so, so he sees, you know, smooth skin, and he goes back to, to, to um, the house, and he's just so thankful to, to the prophet, and he wants to give gifts, and, you know, he, uh, Elisha declines. But, but notice here, Elisha didn't even see the guy. What did Jesus do? He touched the guy. See the contrast here? Even there, it's not that Elisha didn't care, but Elisha's not the son of God. He's not the one who's filled with compassion to the, to the brim. Jesus is. See, Jesus is sovereign in his will, but he, he wills your good. He cares. He wills so much that he's actually willing to come down and touch us in our uncleanness. So Jesus shows his care here. And Jesus really just does whatever he wants, as opposed to Elisha, who has to follow God's will. Jesus exercises his own personal prerogative here. Now, does God want everyone to be saved? 1 Timothy 2.4 says, yes. God wants everyone to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Jeremiah 29.13, God says, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. So does God want everyone to be saved and to repent? Yes. We call that God's will of command. God wants people to be saved. But we say, what about predestination and God's election? That's God's will of decree, God, whom God chooses to be saved. And how those get together, we have lots of different sermons. You could hear the sermon on Exodus or other sermons. I'm not going to untangle that theological problem now. Here's my point. My point right now is this. God ha Jesus has sovereign will, and Jesus wants to heal people. He wants to save people. Even those, everyone. He wants to save everyone. And so... I read Jeremiah 29, 13. You will seek me and find me when you seek for me with all your heart. If you're here and you're not a Christian, all you have to do is come to Jesus. Turn from your sins and run to Jesus. He will heal you. But see, the problem is we don't seek God with all our heart. We want God on our own terms. And when God recognizes that, when Jesus recognizes that, he's not willing to accept people who will not repent from their sins and trust in Christ alone for their salvation. He will reject them. So does God want to save people? Yes. Is God willing to heal? Yes. Does God will your good? Yes. But you must respond. You must respond. Now, look at verse 4. Let's finish this story before we go to the next one. Look at verse 4. So um, Jesus says, after he healed the man, cleansed the man, then Jesus told him, see that you don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a, as a what? Testimony to them. Okay, so don't tell anyone. And the reason for that is Jesus doesn't want to be known as some sideshow miracle worker. He has a message and he has an agenda that he's trying to accomplish. You can read more about that in Mark, about how this guy actually told a bunch of people and crowded out all the places where Jesus wanted to minister. And Jesus was known as a wonder worker. But here... The point is this. 
Jesus is saying, you got to obey the law. The law says when you're clean, you go to the priest, and who's the one who gets to pronounce you clean or unclean? The priest does. And he's doing that according to the law of Moses, according to the old Israelic covenant, the law covenant, the old Israelic covenant. Follow the writings of Moses, go there, and, and, and follow it. And, and then when you're cleaned, it will testify, it will be a testimony that you're clean. Is that all it's testifying, though? Or is it testifying to more? The law of Moses is testifying that this man is clean. But if it testifies that this man is clean, follow the logic. If this man is clean, then it says, then that's also testifying that the man who cleansed him has the power to what? To clean him, right? Has the authority. And if, if that man has the authority to cleanse a leper, then maybe that man's claims and teaching is also authoritative. And if this man is claiming to be the Messiah, the son of man, then maybe he actually is the son of man. Maybe he is the Messiah. So get this. Jesus uses the Mosaic regulation to not only testify that this man is clean, to not only testify that Jesus has the power to cleanse, but to testify that Jesus is the Messiah. So now you have the law of Moses. This man obeys the law, and by obeying the law, that becomes a testimony that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the one with authority. His will is the sovereign will of God. His will to save is God's will to save. And we need to recognize that Jesus wills our good. The leper healed was a messianic expectation. Do you remember John the Baptist when he was in jail and started having doubts about Jesus? He's like, if you're the king, why am I in jail still? You're supposed to get me out of here, cousin slash king, right? Why am I in jail? And Jesus says, go tell John that I'm healing lepers. You're like, what? What does that have to do with anything? Well, that would tell John that if he's healing lepers, he is the Messiah. You didn't make a mistake. The jail is part of the process. The suffering is part of the process. But the point here is that the Messiah will heal lepers. And here, the Mosaic covenant, the law covenant, the Israelic covenant, is testifying that Jesus is the Messiah who heals lepers. So what does that mean for us? If you're a Christian, here's what it means for you. Trust that God cares for you. God wills your good. You can, you can submit to Christ's authority. You don't have to hesitate. Jesus wants your good. He works all things together for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. No good thing does God withhold from those who walk uprightly. No good thing does God withhold from his people. So trust God's care for your good. Go to him, pray to him, come to him in your brokenness, in your guilt, in your sin, even as a Christian. God wills your good. Keep coming to him. Keep receiving his authority. Church family, what does this mean for us? If Christ has authority to will our good, who should we bring people to? Bring people to Jesus. So bring each other to Jesus. As you minister to one another in this church family, as we minister together to our neighbors and the lost, bring them to who? Bring them to Jesus. Don't bring them to one another, ultimately. Bring them to Jesus, because Jesus wills their good. If you're not a Christian, here's good news for you. God wants to cleanse you. God wants you to no longer feel like an outcast. God wants to get rid of your guilt and your shame. God wants to get rid of your loneliness of being cut off from God and his people. He wants to heal you. He wills to heal you. He wants everyone to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And he's calling you this morning to repent from your sins and trust in Jesus. So gladly submit to Jesus' authority so that you enjoy your life in him both now and forever because Jesus wills to make us clean and holy.
So submit to his authority with gladness. Second point, second way, second thing to recognize. Don't just recognize Jesus' will for your good. Recognize, secondly, Jesus' word for your good. His word for your good. Look at verses 5 through 13. I already read it to you. Let me just recap the story and we'll just pick up verses as we move along. So here now you have a centurion. This centurion has a problem. He has a servant, a young servant it seems like, a a young servant, who is sick and paralyzed. And it says here in verse 5, he's paralyzed and in terrible agony. I mean, imagine the terror, the terror, the horrific predicament if you were paralyzed. If you're a quadriplegic, itches you can't scratch, you can't move, and you're just in terrible agony. Now this this centurion cared for his precious friend and servant. Now a centurion, you have the word century there, he gets his name from being the the leader over how many soldiers? A hundred, right? A hundred soldiers. Now, Centurion was a low officer, one of the lowest officers, but he still had authority over 100 people. Now, this Centurion, he was, he was liked by the Jews. Actually, Luke tells us the story. Matthew cuts out some details and gets straight to the point. But Luke tells us that the Centurion actually sent messengers, and, and Jesus is communicating with the Centurion through messengers here. Um, but here, this, this Centurion sends Jewish elders, and the Jewish elders say, you know what, this man bought us a synagogue, he bought us a building, and, and he loves the Jewish nation, he's worthy to be healed. And the centurion says, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. So Jesus is on his way to heal this servant, and, and the, the, the centurion sends a messenger as Jesus gets, it says in another passage, Mark or Luke, that he gets close to the house. When he's already close to the house, I mean, imagine maybe being a block away. You're almost there. And he sends another, another group of messengers and says, please don't come. I'm not worthy to come in, for you to come in my house. Please don't come in. Not because I, I, don't love, I don't trust you or want you. It's because I am so unworthy and you're not. So already Jesus is kind of like, wow, this guy recognizes how high I am in comparison. And then he says this, and this is in verse, verse 8. Just say the what? Word, and my servant will be healed. Here's God's, the authority of Jesus' word. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. You know why? Why is he so confident? Look at verse 9. He tells us in verse 9, for I too am a man under authority. So it's about authority here. I'm a man under authority and I have soldiers under my command. I say to this one, go and he goes and to this one, come and he comes and to this one, do this and he does it. Now notice here, he says that the people I have are under my Authority. When I give the word, they do it. My word has authority. But he doesn't start with that. He says, I am a man under what? I'm a man under authority. What does he mean by that? Because he's talking about his authority. I thought he's a man under authority. Then he talks about how he's exercising, how he has authority over people. Why is he under it if he's exercising it over people? Because, and you know this, if you're familiar with just basic military etiquette, if you, if you don't obey your your superior officer, you're actually, you know, there's, a, there's a, a, a chain of command. And so it goes all the way to the top. So if you don't obey your centurion, your junior officer, you don't obey those who are above. In other words, here's, here's what the centurion's saying. He's under, he's under more superior officers, and he's under ultimately, who's the ultimate authority in the Roman Empire? Caesar, the Roman emperor. 
So here's what, the, here's what the centurion understands. When I speak, Caesar speaks. And Caesar was known as the embodiment of Rome. So when I speak, Rome speaks. So when I tell one of my soldiers, go get, go, go, do, go do this assignment, when he does that, it's the, it's the Caesar, it's the emperor speaking through the centurion. And all of Rome and all of Rome's authority is channeled through the emperor, through all the officers, down to the centurion, down to the command, go do this, go come here, go, go, go there. And so he understands as a man under authority that he represents a higher authority when he speaks. So he looks at Jesus and says, you're a man of authority. And I know, it seems, that when you speak, God speaks. And when you speak, heaven speaks. And all the authority of God and all the authority of heaven is, is distilled in a word from Jesus. This man understands that. So he's saying, and if, they, if you're talking about a Roman soldier, I mean, if you're talking about modern day military, ancient military, they don't have command, they, don't, they can't command diseases to go away, right? I mean, they can't command a paralyzed person to be okay. But if you're speaking for God, can God command para, a paralytic to be healed? Yes. So if he has God's authority and he could speak for God, then he can just say, theoretically, the centurion reasons, he can just say, paralysis be gone. And the paralysis is gone. And so Jesus sees this and he marvels at this man's thinking, this man's rationale, this man's faith, Jesus calls it. And so we see here that Jesus, and then what does Jesus say in response? Look at verse 10. Hearing this, Jesus was what? Amazed and said to those following him, truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with so great a what? A faith. The, pro the response to the word is always faith. Faith comes by hearing, hearing the what? Word. Faith is the proper response to the word. Doubt is the, is the improper response to the word. Faith is always the proper response. So, so here, he says, I've never seen in Israel someone with so great a faith. This man believes what he's heard about Jesus. Faith comes by hearing. He's heard that this man has power. He heard that this man can heal. He heard that this man can, can, can you know, heal lepers and that he's preaching and teaching with authority. He loves the Jewish nation. Maybe he even heard that there was a Jewish Messiah that was coming. We don't know what he's heard, but what he's heard, here's the point. What he has heard, he has believed. And what he has believed impresses Jesus. What he has believed actually channels the grace that Jesus is about to enact for him. So here Jesus responds to the man's faith. The man believes that Jesus will, will speak for his good. The, the man believes that Jesus speaks for his servant's good. And so the question for you today as you're sitting here is, do you believe Jesus speaks for your good? Do you believe Jesus speaks with authority? And do you think Jesus speaks authoritatively for your good and not for your ill? when he commands you to do the command you don't want to do. So now I'm looking at 13-year-old PJ and saying, do you believe Jesus commands your good when he might be telling you to be a pastor and you don't want to be a pastor because you're scared that you're going to be poor? Do you believe that Jesus speaks for your good? That's the, that's the question. If you do, then you enthusiastically receive authority, right? You gladly submit. But when you doubt, 
that he's speaking for your good, then you resist. It feels like a burden on your back that God would command you to do such a thing or believe such a thing. Now, Jesus goes a step further here with this man. So let's go to verse 11 and 12. He actually takes, so in verse, let's just close off the story. In verse 13, he ends up saying, he speaks for the man's good, and he says um, in verse 13, he told a centurion, go, as you have believed, let it be done for you. And his servant was healed when? That very moment, that very hour, that very moment, that very occasion, he was healed. So Jesus spoke authoritatively for this man's good. Now, Jesus kind of does a sidebar here, and Matthew wants us to focus on this because Luke, in Luke 7, Luke tells a story. Luke doesn't tell us this. When Mark tells a story, Mark doesn't tell us this point. But verses 11 and 12 are specific for Matthew. So Matthew wants us to get something here very specific. So let's, let's focus on verses 11 and 12. Look at verse 11. I tell you that many will come from east and west to share the banquet with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be thrown where? Into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Here, Jesus is drawing up. He sees this Gentile's faith, this centurion, Roman centurion. And so he says, look, there's going to be a banquet one day. And in this banquet, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will be feasting. Now, let me just give you a little bit of a biblical theology here of the banquet. You don't have to turn there, but Isaiah talks about this. In Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 9, so uh, let's start with, um, let me just um, kind of give you a background on this, this kingdom of heaven banquet or feast. Abraham was promised a people, a place, and a blessing, that God would rule and give Abraham a land, and his people would be there, and they would be blessed. Okay, so that's, that's there's, this king, there's a kingdom. There's a kingdom, there's a sinner-saving, curse-reversing rule, there's flourishing, there's harmony, there's shalom in this kingdom. And then where does the feast idea come from? It comes from Isaiah. Isaiah 25, verse 6 is this. On this mountain, in this place, on the salvation day, the Lord of armies will prepare for all the peoples, not just the Israelites, the Lord will prepare for all the peoples a feast of choice meat, a feast with aged wine, prime cuts of choice meat, fine vintage wine. On this mountain, he will destroy the burial shroud, the shroud over all the peoples, the sheet covering all the nations. He will destroy death forever. This is the new heavens and the new earth. The Lord God will wipe away tears from every face. Does that sound familiar? And remove the people's disgrace from the whole earth, for the Lord has spoken. So he'll remove our sin, our shame. On that day, it will be said, look, this is our God. We have waited for him, and he has saved us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. So the final day of salvation is a what? It's a feast. It's a feast. In the kingdom, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we will feast. God's people will feast. And here's what is Jesus saying here? People will come from where? In verse 11. East and west, people from every ethnic people group will come to the feast and will celebrate. But, verse 12, the sons of the kingdom will be thrown out. Who are the sons of the kingdom? I mean, if they're sons of the kingdom, aren't they going to be in the kingdom feast? Apparently not. Who are the sons of the kingdom here? I hear some of you say the Jewish people. Yeah, those who have descended ancestrally from Jacob. Those who are descendants of Jacob. Those who are descendants of Jacob ethnically. 
they will be thrown out. That's not saying all Jews will be thrown out. I mean, the disciples are the, the first, the early church is all Jews, right? So I'm not saying all Jews, but the point is, you're not, you don't enter the kingdom by your ancestry. You don't enter the kingdom by your ethnic identity. You don't enter the kingdom just because your parents are part of the kingdom. Those who are sons of the kingdom, those who are ethnically part of the old covenant Israel, they will be thrown out if they do not have faith like the centurion has faith. If they do not believe in Jesus, are you at the kingdom feast? No, you're thrown out where? Into the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Here's the good news. You don't have to be Jewish to feast in the kingdom. You don't have to be an Israelite ethnically, ancestrally, to feast with Israel, Jacob, Abraham, and Isaac in the kingdom. You can come from whatever, whatever ethnic ancestral line you come from, you can come to Jesus and feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob if you will repent from your sins and trust in who? Jesus Christ. The way the centurion is pointing us to trusting in Jesus Christ. So here's good news. If you're not a Christian, Jesus Christ died for your sins and rose from the dead so that you can feast with him. If you don't, where will you be thrown? If you don't trust in Jesus, you'll be thrown where? To the outer darkness because we're all sinners and God is holy. And because we're sinners and God is holy, the wages of sin is death. And death here is described as being thrown into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, the lake of fire. Hell is what we call it. You'll be thrown to hell in damnation if you do not trust in Jesus, if you reject Jesus, if you continue in your sin. And the good news is that you don't have to go there. God is speaking a word to you this morning that faith would come by hearing and you would repent and trust in Christ. So if you're not a Christian, I invite you to call on the Lord to save you. Children, see some children here? Children, you're not a Christian because your parents are Christians. These are sons of the kingdom. They're part of old covenant Israel and their parents, some of their parents trusted in Yahweh and yet they will be thrown out. Just because you grow up in a Christian home doesn't make you a Christian. Just because you say you're a Christian doesn't make you a Christian. You know what makes you a Christian? Trusting in Jesus and repenting from your sins. So children, listen to what your parents tell you about Jesus. You have to make your own decision by yourself to trust in Jesus and turn from your sins. And if you do, we'll feast together. What does this mean for missions? We can't be content with just reaching Southeast Los Angeles, right? Because people are gonna come from where? To this banquet, they're coming from where? East and West, from every ethnic people group. They're coming from everywhere. So every church and every Christian has to have a burden for the Great Commission, which is disciple all ethnic people groups. So we have to have a heart for missions. We have to give to missions. We have to pray for missions. We have to go and send and support missions. That's what we have to do. So we pray for China and the UK and Uganda and other relationships that God is giving us. But notice, this is a feast. Where do we see this feast regularly? Today, in what we call the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a means of God's grace where you have people from east and west, from every ethnic people group, made one ethnic people group, the holy nation of Jesus Christ. And they drink and eat together. Now you're saying, that little cracker isn't much of a feast, PJ. And that little cup, I'm still thirsty. 
It's not a feast. It's true. It's not. The early church actually did it with a meal. We, we would do well to do that whenever we have our meals. But the point is, it's not supposed to be fully satisfying. Because even Jesus said, I will not drink this cup with you until I drink it with you where? In my Father's kingdom, right? In the kingdom. So it's supposed to be a preview, a little taste, but not satisfying enough. I want more. I want more of Jesus. I want to commune with him more. I want to commune with God's people more. I want to see more of your grace. But it is still a fresh experience of God's grace, is it not? It is. And so when you go to the Lord's table, realize we are previewing the feast to come. And I want you next time we take the Lord's Supper to look around at all of these people who are here taking the Lord's Supper because God's word is authoritatively saving people. Why are these sinners drinking the cup? They're lepers. They're sinners. They're rebels. They're selfish. That's me. They're self-righteous. And yet here they are eating the bread and drinking the cup. Why? Because Christ saves them. He saves sinners. That's what Jesus means. He comes to save his people from their sins. So when we take the Lord's Supper, we see an effective display of Jesus' authoritative saying that he saves sinners. So next time we eat and drink, rejoice. Because we are, what's the response to the word? What's the right response to the word? Faith. The, the, the bread and the drink are word pictures. And so what's the response when you see the bread? Faith. Believe in Christ's death. His body, what? Broken for you. His blood, what? Spilled for you for the new covenant. Believe that truth every time you take it and commune with God. So here's my challenge to you in terms of communion. Take it more thoughtfully, joyfully, worshipfully, and consistently. Do you know that we take the Lord's Supper every Sunday now at this church? Some of you don't know because you don't come on Sunday nights. But we do. We take the Lord's Supper every single Sunday. Why? Because we long for Christ to return. And we long to remember his death and resurrection again and again and again. We don't want to just hear it. We want to feel it tangibly in our mouths with a little cup and a little piece of bread. We want to feel it. We want to believe that gospel word again and again and again. So my challenge to you is to take communion more seriously, more worshipfully, more consistently, more happily, more expectantly, more thoughtfully. Come tonight at 5 o'clock when we take our Lord's Supper. And the church exercises authority on who takes the Lord's Supper, don't we? We say, we, we tell people who to take it. We say, if you're not a Christian, don't take it because you're not gonna be at the final feast. But then you say, well, what if I'm a Christian? Well, if you're a Christian, then make it public because this is a public feast. So go get baptized. Join a church that preaches the same gospel you heard preached here and then take it with us all the time. But if you're, if you're saying you're a Christian privately, but you're not saying it publicly, then we, won't let, we don't want you to take it publicly because it's a public feast. So if you're saying I'm a Christian privately, well, that's great as far as it goes, and hopefully it's true. But God, if you're going to obey Jesus, you have to be a public Christian, which means you get baptized, you join a church that preaches the gospel, and then you're always welcome to our feast, our Lord's table. So again, if you're not a Christian, you can take the Lord's Supper with us. If you repent from your sins and trust in Jesus, you're invited. Just come to Jesus and then publicly declare that in baptism and joining a gospel church. And we're happy to celebrate the supper with you again and again and again. So here's Jesus speaking. He speaks a word for our good. Christian, listen to God's word. And when you hear God's word, trust God's word. Here's the application. Fill yourself with hearing God's word. 
Hear God's word, read it, memorize it, listen to it on your podcast, on your CD player. Listen, 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 hear, 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 read, 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 memorize and recite over and over. Hear other people talk about it. Hear God's word regularly because faith comes by hearing. So saturate your life with hearing God's word. Listen to sermons twice because you don't get everything the first time. Church family, what does this mean for us as a church? Reverberate and repeat God's words back to each other. When we do the one-minute reflection, we are not wasting your time. We're actually helping you to trust what God has said. Don't waste your one-minute takeaway time. Use it to say God's word and use it to hear God's word because faith comes by hearing. Don't waste it. Use it, and then use it to prompt more speaking of God's word, that our church becomes an echo chamber where God's word just keeps getting said and said and said everywhere, and we keep growing in our faith. All right, let's go to the last story. So recognize Jesus' will for your good. Secondly, recognize Jesus' word for your good. And thirdly and lastly, recognize Jesus' work for your good, verses 14 to 17. Here's the story, and it's a short story, really. Um, Peter, Peter's mom is sick, his mother-in-law, so this is earlier on, Jesus preaches a gospel, uh, uh, in the synagogue, and then he goes across the street to Peter's house. Peter's mom is there sick, lying in bed with a fever. Now, don't think of a fever the way you think of fevers today. Just take some Tylenol and you're good, right? Just wait a few days, you're good. No, fevers back then, you don't have Tylenol. Fevers were, were scary. Think of it more like you think of pneumonia with an elderly person. You get a little scared, right? Elderly people with pneumonia, that's scary. This is Peter's mother-in-law. If, he's living with, if she's living with Peter, presumably her husband has passed away. So maybe she's older and she has a fever. You ever have loved ones that you're scared might be taken away in a sickness? That's how Peter feels. That's how Peter's wife feels. And Jesus crosses the street after preaching and he goes to her. She's in bed. And of course, their prayer requests are always for their mother-in-law because she's sick. What does Jesus do? He goes there to her bed and what does he do? He touches her what? Touches her hand. She gets up immediately and starts to serve. She starts to be hospitable because Jesus is able to heal with a word. He's able to heal with his willingness. He's able to heal with his touch. Jesus heals Peter's mom. Not only does he heal Peter's mom, go on in verse 15 or verse 16. When evening came, this is Sabbath evening, so Saturday night. Now, Sabbath is from Friday night to Saturday night. One Saturday night is, you know, in Sabbath, you can't carry people around in, in, in mats and stuff because you don't want to break the Sabbath. But as soon as Sabbath is over, all these people coming to Jesus, rushing to Jesus that Saturday night, as soon as they're waiting for the sun, is the sun down? Once the sun sets, go! You know, and so they all rush to Jesus where he's at because they know where he's at near Peter's mom's house. And so they rush and crowd him. All of these sick people, all of these demon oppressed people, demonized people, demon-influenced people. And what does Jesus do in verse 16? When evening came, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed. I would prefer to call it demon-oppressed rather than demon-possessed. I think that gives bad thoughts. We'll talk about demon possession next Sunday um, in our next story. But demon-oppressed, he drove out the spirits with a word, and he healed all who were sick. So Jesus drives away the demon oppression in people's lives. That's an internal problem. And to do that, he's also breaking the power of sin in people's lives. That doesn't mean they don't sin anymore, but they're not overwhelmed by their sin anymore. So he breaks the demon's powers. He breaks the power of sin in their lives. And he's healing people who are sick. All who are sick who come. 
Now, what's the whole purpose? We're closing with our last verse now. What's the whole purpose of all this? Verse 17, so that what? So that what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. He himself took our weaknesses and carried our diseases. Why can Jesus heal our diseases? Because he carried our diseases. Why can Jesus heal and, take and um, remove our weaknesses? Because he takes our weaknesses. He takes it for us. He carries it for us. And so he can heal us. Now this is coming from what passage? Does anyone know? One of the most famous passages in the Old Testament. So keep your finger in Matthew. I want you to turn to Isaiah. Isaiah 53. I heard someone say it. Good. Isaiah 53. Turn to Isaiah 53. This is Isaiah 53 verse 4. Isaiah 53 verse 4. It says this. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses and carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him as stricken, struck down by God, and afflicted. So here's Jesus, prophecy 700 years before Jesus came on the scene. And it's, it's prophesying that Jesus would, that the Messiah would bear our sicknesses and carry our pains. Now this is strange. I want everyone to look up here for a second. Isaiah 53 is talking mostly about what? Where does Jesus carry our sicknesses and pains? If you go on to verse 5, pierced for our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities, the punishment for our peace was on him, and we were healed by his wounds. We all, like sheep, went astray. We have turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. Where does that happen? On the cross, right? Now, understand what Matthew is doing here. He's doing something that we're not used to if you're not from a charismatic background. He's saying that the healing of Peter's mom and all the healings and all the demon breaking, all the exorcisms and the breaking of demonic power and sin in people's lives is because of what? The what? The cross. Healing Peter's mom of the fever is because of the cross. Healing the leper is because of the cross. Healing the paralytic servant, the paralyzed servant, is because of the cross. What does that mean? If Jesus, we, we know that the cross takes care of our sin, right? And it takes care of our death in hell. So sin and the wages of sin is what? Death. But what happens between sin and death? All of the consequences of sin here in the middle, right? Sickness, sin, giving into demonic temptation, demonic oppression, demonic influence in your life. Brokenness, aging, pain, being sinned against. All of these burdens on us because we are sinners and we live in a sinful, broken world. And so we say Jesus solves our problem of sin and he solves our problem of death. What Matthew is saying, he solves all of it, including everything in the middle as well. And it's all solved by what? The cross of Jesus Christ. In other words, every good thing you ever experience is blood-bought. Every good thing. Not just your salvation. If you, if you get encouraged by anyone here today, you have a good conversation and you leave encouraged, that was a blood-bought encouragement. Everything, you, everything goes back to what? The cross. The cross is the center and the source of every good you'll ever know. Every single good. Every healing. Every breaking from demonic influence and temptation. Every sin that you're able to get away from. It's all blood-bought. 
Jesus dies for our sins. Is he good? Can we trust him? He has no checks and balances. He has full reign over you if you're a Christian. No checks, no balances. Can you trust his omnipotent, almighty, unchecked authority? He wills your good. He speaks your good in his word. And he works for your good with the death, with his death on the cross. So brothers and sisters, rest in the cross. Look to the cross again and again. When you doubt that God is for you and you think he's against you, when you're overwhelmed by your trials and you're tempted to complain, look at the cross and see God's love. See God's goodness. Parents, look to the cross in your parenting trials. Children, when your parents seem unfair, look to the cross. Married people, when you're fighting with your spouse, look to the cross. Singles, when you're doing ministry because of your free time or when you're longing to, to stop being single, look to the cross. When you're discouraged, brothers and sisters, look to the cross. When you're encouraged, look to the cross as the reason for your encouragement. When you're stumbling, look to the cross. When you're soaring spiritually, look to the cross. Look to Jesus. We preach Christ crucified. And we don't want anything else to be known in our church but Christ crucified and risen. Church family, point everyone to the cross. Point each other to the cross as the source and center of all of our good. The cross is our rock in our suffering. The cross is our strength in bearing burdens, not only ours, but others. Go back to the cross again and again. If you're not a Christian, you might be saying, okay, I get that, but PJ, this doesn't make sense. Why does God have to be all angry and stuff? Why does he have to have a cross? Like, can't God just forgive our sins? I mean, why, why be so drastic to say, if somebody sins, they have to go to hell or die on a cross? Why does God have to be so angry? I mean, isn't God love? Why, 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 why the necessity of a cross? Here's the answer. Anything truly valuable, when it's broken, it's costly to restore. Anything truly valuable, when you break that, it costs, it's costly to restore. What do I mean by that? This is not an iPhone XS, but let's say it was. I just looked up last night, because I always say this, and I always have to look up the price. So if this was an iPhone XS with the biggest memory, it's $1,349. Okay, that's ridiculous, but that's what it is. So if I got my brand new, if, if you got your brand new phone, and I said, hey, can I borrow your phone real quick? I want to see it. I've never seen the, 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 you know, the most expensive iPhone. So you show it to me, I'm like, man, this is so cool. I wonder what features it has. And I start banging it on the floor, on the concrete, and breaking it. And I'm like, oh, man, I guess it doesn't have that feature of, um, you know, being protected. And you don't have insurance, and I give it back to you. And I, I, I'm kind of being a smart aleck and sarcastic when I'm doing that. And then later I get home, and I really feel convicted. And I'm like, you know what, that was wrong. That was wrong for me to break that, that brother's phone. So I, I go back to the brother, and I say, you know what, I'm so sorry. Can you forgive me? I know you don't have insurance, but I just thought, I thought, hey, if it's so expensive, maybe it should be able to be indestructible. So I'm so sorry. Can you forgive me for breaking your phone? Now, you could do one of two things if I did that to your phone. You could either forgive me or not forgive me, right? <laughs> if you don't forgive me, then you're, you're obligating me to what? What do I have to do with it? What do I have to do? I have to pay for it, right? Now, if you forgive me, though, if you forgive me, does the phone just magically get fixed? No. If you forgive me and you say, PJ, you don't have to pay for it, guess what? Guess who has to pay for it? You do. Or you don't pay for a new one, but you're, out, you're still out $1,300, right? 
The point is this. If it's costly... 57 minutes, 44.77 seconds. Wow. <laughs> it's reading my timer now. That's my timer on the, on the sermon. Um, but, but my point is... <laughs> where was I? Oh, yeah, my point is that you have to absorb the cost. The phone doesn't magically reappear, right? The phone doesn't magically reappear. And so you have to absorb the cost or make me pay for it. But, but it doesn't magically reappear. How much more valuable is our relationship with God than $1,300? For God to repair the relationship that you broke with him by your sin, you're saying, what's the big deal? Just forgive. You're just love, right? Do you understand how holy and righteous and majestic God is? And how much we owe him just by virtue of him being our creator? And he's a good God on top of all that. Our sin is worth infinite debt. So you, we will either pay for it eternally in hell or Christ pays for it on the cross. Here's the good news. Even though God is angry with sin, God comes down and pays it for us if we will repent from our sins and trust in him. So if you're not a Christian, you're saying, you know what, I don't want to be a Christian because God's an angry God. If you, anything that's valuable to you, you know that it's costly to fix a broken relationship. And so it is here with God. So, gladly submit to Christ's authority. Do we do that well? You guys doing that well? Submitting to Christ's authority? You guys doing a good job with that? No, we all still struggle and fail to submit to Christ with gladness, even as Christians. But you know who never struggled with it? Christ. Christ always submitted to the Father's authority, even going to the cross. And yet, Jesus was made unclean for us on the cross. He was, he was, he was outcast. Unclean, unclean, unclean. That's Jesus on the cross. Cast out from God's presence. He obeyed God's will of uncleanness so we can have God's will of cleanness for us. We talked about the sons of kingdom, sons of the kingdom being thrown where? Into the what? Outer what? Darkness. And where is Jesus on the cross? He's hanging in what? Darkness. For three hours, hanging in outer darkness. Cast off from the feast of the Trinitarian celebration. Cast off from communion with God for our sins. Jesus was cast off to outer darkness so that we can sit at his table. Jesus bore our sicknesses and the oppression of demons on himself so that we can be healed and we can be freed. So let's thank the Lord for his right to rule over us, even when we don't understand how good he is. Let's submit. If we don't submit gladly and trust God, even when we don't get it, we're gonna complain, we'll make excuses, and we're gonna show that we don't really trust Jesus. But if we, if we do trust in Jesus, we'll grow in our faith, in our joy, and in our hope. So let us gladly submit to Jesus. We still need to learn this every day. God is good. And he's good to us in Jesus' will, Jesus' word, and Jesus' work on the cross. Let's pray. Father, take this word. Hide it in our hearts that we would not sin against you. Keep reminding us how good you are, that we might repent and trust in you afresh. In Jesus' name, amen.